What up? This is episode 34 of Dart Against Humanity. Something I've encountered recently involves me responding to articles written by younger writers who are in my same field. Uh, in one instance, it was an article or piece, a series that was written for um, DJ Booth. Um, in the particular series, the aim was to list or rank, better yet, the greatest years in hip-hop history. And I winced as soon as I saw the premise for the article. Um, the reason being is... First of all, and I'm pretty sure you just heard me sigh. First of all, you have to know hip-hop history inside and out. And also, the wording is crucial. When you want to make an article or a piece, a series, about the greatest year in hip-hop history, what you're saying is, we're going to start at the beginning which would technically be 1973. And I'm going to go from 1973 through 2018. I'm going to rank every year on its importance in hip hop. That is biting off more than you can chew. That is a book. That book is going to be th is about as thick as the Holy Bible. If we're going to keep it a book. So please don't ever do that. There are very few people that could even execute this book. It would probably take years and you'd have to interview a disgusting amount of people. When I think of what Dan Charnas had to go through just to write The Big Payback, which is a, a book thicker than Sierra Rogers. It's close to what, like 600 pages? I think he interviewed 300 people. Um, which I read intermittently. From time to time, I didn't have my own copy for the longest. And I finally got my own because why not? That book is researched to hell. Now, in order to do the article or the piece that you want to do right, like correctly, right, execute it well, it would take so much time and so much energy. So I already knew that this article was going to be full of issues. It was going to be full of glaring omissions. It just wasn't going to be executed properly. There's no way to do it. And the other part is that the person who wrote it was born in 1992. So I already knew this article was fucked from jump. Another reason why the article was already um, doomed from the beginning, doomed from the outset, is because of the wording again. The wording has to be on point. If you wanted to make an article about the best years in rap music history, not hip-hop history, and rap music history, that's a different article.
And even then, the criterion that you have to have or the requirements in order to determine which year is better than which year in terms of ranking has to be immaculate. Unfortunately, this also wasn't the case with this article. It was too um, focused on who made the like the albums and like artists, and there was no focus on innovations made, uh, new technology introduced, uh, things that happened that year in the landscape. It's all well and good to talk about like who were the main MCs, like. How about who were the main producers? What new things happened that changed that time? What were the key events that put everything into context that changed that year? 1991 was 1991 because it came after 1990. What happened in 1991 that changed everything? That changed anything? What happened in 1990 that changed anything? This is how we should really be determining what year was better. Like. If you don't know that 1990 was huge for rap because, one, it was the beginning of the what we call the pop rap era as we're going into the sound scan era. With the um, popularity and success of uh, MC, like MC Hammer, but also uh, Vanilla Ice and those albums climbing the charts and outselling Beastie Boys and everything else. I mean, that's crucial. Labels begin trying to find somebody or artists to, you know, counter those sales. They begin like trying to get crossover hits. But also a key reason why 1990 is huge is because that year is the year that two crucial radio shows were introduced that forever changed the landscape of and the trajectory of rap music going forward. Uh, on the East Coast, one of those shows was, you know, the Stretch and Bobbito show at 88 Tech 9. The other show being Sway and Tech show Friday Night Flavors. Both of these events happened in 1990. Now, if you were born in 1992, I don't care how much research you did. You wouldn't know that or know to put that in your piece off the top of your head because you didn't live it. I lived it. I remember when the Stretch and Bob show was new. I remember when people were just discovering it through 1991 and then through 1992. I remember what it was like before Billboard had a rap charts. I remember the first Billboard rap charts, March 11th, 1989, right after they just had the, um, the first ever Grammy Awards and American Music Awards category where they gave awards to rappers. I also know that one of the big things about You Can't Touch This Blowing Up was that it happened right after uh, MC Hammer 
won the American Music Awards, actually two American Music Awards for in the rap category, and he beat out uh, Easy E and Tone Loke. And that was actually put in the beginning of the video for You Can't Touch This. A lot of people don't know that. So MC Hammer was coming off of the success of his album, his first album, Let's Get It Started in 1988 on Capitol, which sold through late 1988 all the way through 1989. Now, the particular piece, I critiqued it before it was even done because I read what it was trying to do and everything else and I was just like all right you're already going to screw this up because you don't have the background to properly execute this and you didn't even understand where you went wrong and the execution from jump so when you're building a house or whatever you know you have the foundation and you lay stuff down and you do all this stuff if you fuck up one of those two first steps everything you do after that the house is doomed so once you finish the house and you and the house is done, it's like, hey, I finished the house. Anybody who knows anything about construction knows this house is already fucked. You might as well just knock this whole shit down and start over. Because you fucked up the foundation. But the house is up. And from the outside, it looks good. To the layperson, it looks good. But people who actually build homes know. This is fucked up. The reason I'm bringing this up is because uh, another incident occurred, of course, on Twitter. Everything happens on Twitter. I want to get through this quickly so I can talk about something that matters. Um, I was having a discussion specifically about ageism and rap music. Which people think is a discussion about ageism and hip-hop culture. Not exactly the same. So, I discussed how people are jump are talking about how ageist it is in the rap industry. And I explain, well, here's the thing. When you discuss ageism in rap now, you have to understand the history of the entire genre first and you also have to understand how recent the phenomenon of having rappers be of a certain age and still be relevant and still be commercially viable how recent of a phenomenon that is and you have to think about how long is the the present audience been fans that also factors into it everybody who the labels and the industry cater to, who radio caters to, are not people my age. And when I was coming up, rappers rarely lasted that long. Special Ed, uh, let's see, his career started, what, when he was 16? His first album comes out between 16 and 17, um, Youngest in Charge. His next album comes out, is called Legal. Both albums are classics. I think they come out within 18 months of each other. You see the 16, 17 on one album, 18 going on 19 on the other one, or just turned 18 on the other one. When's it, but Special Ed hadn't, didn't release an album in 93. He didn't release an album in 94. 
by the time I saw Special Ed in um in his cameo appearance in Juice, which came out what January nineteen ninety two, Special Ed hadn't had an album out in a minute. He was like on an episode of a of um the Cosby Show, but he hadn't had an album out in a while. He hadn't had a hit in a minute. So by the time Special Ed was like 23, he was kind of an afterthought. But he was the man when he was 16, 17, and 18. Okay? Just think about that. When Run DMC, I've discussed this before. When Run DMC, whose career's first singles came out in 1983, they released their album Down With The King in 1993. They had a joint on the album, an interlude called For 10 Years. And the way they talked about being around for a decade on that album made it sound like they'd been around for 25. Because being around since 1983 in the rap industry and the rap landscape in 1993 was 25 years. Because there had been so many different eras by then. 1993 was... We didn't realize it at the time, but we were into a second golden era. And in those golden eras, we had a bunch of people come up and a bunch of people get pushed the fuck out. You have to realize guys like Cool Mo D started their careers between 16, 17 and 18. On average, as an MC, you entered the game between 16, 17, and 18. That's you were like the fat boys. The fat boys like between 13 and 15. The real shit. The fat boys between 13 and 15. When they first in- came on the scene as the Disco 3 in 83. So by like 84, they're still children. When they blow up and the Fresh Fest happens and the first album comes out. Then they're fucking huge in 85. 86, they put out the album Crushing, which I believe is their third album. The album, the movie Disorderlies comes out. They got their, their endorsing swatches. They were in Crush Groove. So these guys were like 16 years old on their third album, Millionaires. Crossover successes had songs like Wipeout. 86, that was their height. That was their peak. 87, they have a successful album, but you have the Rock Hems and the Big Daddy Canes of the world coming in, the BDPs. So Fat Boys aren't who aren't like up there. 88, they put out another album. By that time, they're already their declines already happened. All right. So if you imagine it, by 88, 86 is their peak. 88, 89, people are trying to get them the fuck out of here. Like, they're old. They're washed. They're not even all 18 yet. Or they're just turning 18. Can you wrap your brain around that? So this is what I need people to understand. So when a guy like Cool Mo D, who probably entered the game between 16 and 18, back in the late 70s, early 80s, revolutionized MCing, changed the MC battle forever, was regarded as one of the greatest all-time MCs on a technical, a lyrical, you know, just, he's that guy. One of those guys. One of the three, one of the top three guys coming in early. Like, the guys that everybody looked at were Grandmaster Melly Mel, 
before he was even Grandmaster Melly Mel, when he was just Melly Mel of the three MCs. You got Grandmaster Kaz when he was just Casanova Fly before he was Grandmaster Kaz. He got the Grandmaster title for a reason. And then you had Cool Mo D, who was one of the treacherous three. Then he went solo. All right. Those were the three guys. Early on. And seeing as we know it began and evolved from 1977 on. Right. Keep that in mind. By the time that guy was about to turn 30. Which is around 1991. His career was in decline. He had released the album Funky Funky Wisdom. It um, had some hits on it like Rise and Shine. I believe How Cool Can a Black Man Be was on there. But the rest of the album was terrible. It was probably some of the worst Teddy Riley production he's ever made. Uh, Some uninspired beats that he made. But similar things happened with Curtis Blow. Curtis Blow was the king of rap between 1980 and 1985. By the time he was on American Bandstand for Crush Groove in 85, talking to Dick Clark, he was remarking, I think he was 25 at the time, he was remarking about how old he felt and how he's about to have to retire soon. And Dick Clark was amused as fuck. And he's laughing. He was like, you make it sound like you're an old man. He's like, what, you got to retire or whatever? You're only 25. And Curtis Blow responds to him and says, we got guys that are 15 and 16. And he's talking about the fat boys who he was producing, who were were going gold and platinum when he couldn't even manage to make a gold and platinum album at the time. He could make successful singles like If I Ruled the World. But cool. He was not the guy selling records like Run DMC were. He wasn't even selling like Houdini was. And by the time we get to 86, 87, 88, he's out of here. They're pushing him out the door. Matter of fact, I I found a flyer, I think from 87 maybe. Um, uh, I'm not sure if it was the album backed by popular demand or not, but one of the albums where it was like a going away party or whatever, or a retirement party damn near for for uh for Curtis Blow. But the thing is that he just put out an album if you look at the it was like a album release party and a going away party, but he released another album. After that album, the Back by Popular Demand album. But it wasn't Back by Popular Demand because the album fell on deaf ears and nobody was really trying to buy that shit. So, in 1987, Spoonie G was calling himself the Godfather. Busy B put out an album in 88. The album was Suicide on it. But that would be his last gasp right there. You know, the album did fairly well. But it would be his last gasp. Um, in '86, uh, that's when Lovebug Starsky put out his put out his Chief Rocker project. But like, he didn't get another shot on a major label of putting out a big album. And these guys were considered old school. 
And these guys weren't even sniffing 30 yet. Go look up how old Lovebug Starsky was in 86, 87. And he was considered old and they were trying to push him out. Because there was a new wave of younger MCs coming up like Cool G Rap. Like KRS-One. Like Big Daddy Kane. 87, you got guys like Tila Rock who had hit with It's Yours back in 84 who were still somewhat viable. But I think what happened with Tila Rock was uh, his injury kind of um, stopped his career. But when you look back at like the old school guy, look at like Houdini. Houdini was hot from 84 with their first album and then like Escape going forward, Open Sesame, I think that was 87. That was their last successful album. I think that was hot between 87 and 88. And Back in Black, was Back in Black 86? So they had like four successful albums. And then like by 1991, they tried to put an album called Bag of Tricks and they sounded fucking horrible. Like, was like, why are they here? Like, why y'all, like, y'all still rap? Y'all need to give this shit up. Y'all look and sound like old men. You got motherfuckers like Tretch out here and here y'all trying to rap. You dress like my uncle, trying to trying to haul at women in the club. Like, what the fuck are you doing, B? That was the appeal of Houdini back then. They dressed like motherfuckers that could have been in the time. But they rapped. So radio and and like the black music establishment would accept them some versus run DMC who looked like hoodlums to them. It's so funny when you hear black folks talk down on black folks and black shit which is something I've actually experienced in my life which bugs out other people they're like wait y'all don't lump everything in together no no it's just crazy but the point I'm making is that when you don't fully understand something and don't have the full context of it but think you do you don't understand what you're doing wrong but to the expert, we see all of the errors. Now, moreover, what happened was my discussion about ageism and rap, what ended up happening was this kid, I guess, or this um, writer decided to send me a link unsolicited talking about he did a piece about Cool Modi and his influence and everything else. And I'm like, oh, let me read this because I already know. If you send me an unsolicited link and you're talking about Kumo D and I don't already know who you are and it's from a site I've never heard of, I'm already skeptical. So I'm, I'm already about to read the shit out of this and figure out everything that's wrong with it. I have my critical eye on. Well, I always do, so it doesn't even matter. Why should I even say that? So I read the article and I catch... A whole bunch of errors. I catch a gang of omissions. I catch a bunch of misleading statements. But the person is making a reach based on this assumption. 
based on this article, which is about uh, artists and rap who are dual discipline, meaning they're rapper and producers or MC producer MCs. And for some odd reason, it decided to focus on the ones that went platinum, which is for anybody who knows anything, a decent amount about rap or hip hop. That's a horrible idea. Because what you do is you automatically eliminate a bunch of people that are way better choices for a discussion about being producer MCs. Because barely anybody went platinum during that era. And the people that did go platinum during that era, you are limiting the fuck out of your options. The better the people that you can have in your um to write about as subject matter the better the piece and the better the article and anybody who's an editor worth any worth any salt could have said that and i'm looking at the article and they focus on uh kumo d in 1987 for how you like me now because he has producer credits on all of the songs, which I wanted, I automatically was like, wait, what? I know Cool Moe D had producer credits on those albums. I know that Too Short had producer credits on certain albums. But when we associate the people who did the production on those albums, we don't necessarily lend it to the artist. When I think Too Short production, I think Ant Banks. When I think uh, Kumo D production, I think uh, Chuck New. I think the guys that he had in his team, which did the production for him, including Teddy Riley. Kumo D had three producers and Teddy Riley as an extra guy. Those are the people I think of when I think Kumo D. Because when you think of somebody who's supposedly a dual discipline person or an MC producer, you think about them doing outside production as a work, work that doesn't just include themselves. I mean, Heavy D of Heavy D and the Boys. Heavy D's name shows up in the production credits because he was actually a producer. But he actually has a career as a producer. If you look under Heavy D's production credits, you see the... The songs he's produced for other people. Redman. Redman is an MC producer. When you look at the shit Redman produced for himself, a lot of times Redman didn't like producing for himself. He preferred to have Eric Sermon or someone else produce for him, a rock while produce for him while he performs. But he would do outside production and he would produce for himself as well. You look at people like Lord Finesse. Lord Finesse, yes, he would produce for himself, but he was produced, he do outside production. When you think of somebody who is a dual discipline producer, you think of that, the outside work that they've done for other people. This is the same for Kwame, same for Redhead Kingpin. These are better examples of people, showbiz, of showbiz and AG. Even though he stopped rapping after a while. But th- th- you think of Pete Rock. Pete Rock. You know, he didn't start out as an MC, start out strictly as a producer. He started rapping uh, right about the old, um, to- totally sold the sold out era, um, going into uh, Mecca and the Soul Brother, 
than the main ingredient. He got better as he went on until like he was an MC and producer by the time he puts out his solo shit. And one of the things that they were focusing on was Dre. And I'm like, well, here's the difference with Dre. Dre rapped kind of out of necessity. Because Easy E rapped out of necessity. All they had was Cube and Ren. We needed more verses on these albums. Because you gotta remember, it used to be NWA and the Posse. They had a bunch of people that they could produce for and have jo- and do joints. That posse kind of that posse completely shrunk by the time we get to um the album, this this album. So now we're going to need Dre to step up and rhyme because Dre was actually better at rapping and understood rhythm and meter way better than Easy E. Easy E's Easy Does It is a classic album, but look at how much work and help that had to be put into it by Ren, by Cube, by Doc T, who as we now know is um, DOC, in order to make that album happen. These are the things that you think of. And then when you like you look at the list of the albums that they chose or the artists that they chose and you're like, what about what about what about what about this would be a better example. This would be a better example. This would be a better example. Why would you focus on platinum? If you could have gone gold, you could have cast a wider net of available people to make this article about. So I'm just seeing all the errors with it. And I tell the person who sent me the article. This article is misleading statements. It says things like Ice-T, who people consider the first gangster rapper. No, they don't. Ice-T has gone on record as saying that he kind of followed what Schooly D did with PSK and Gucci time going forward, and he applied it to himself. And the term gangster rap was what was a response by uh, mainstream music writers to uh, N.W.A. In particular, they got it from their single Gangsta Gangsta, which blew up. And um, I really need to explain this to people. Straight Outta Compton was not released in August 1988. I'm fully convinced that there's been a mix-up. The original version of um, N.W.A. and the Posse, I think I mentioned on a previous podcast, was released, I think, in 1987. It was re-released on Ruthless in August 1988, and it began climbing up the charts. For some odd reason, people were confused and think that the album that came out in August 1988 is Straight Outta Compton. Straight Outta Compton did not come out until 1989. I'm pretty sure it came out in February 1989, and it started really moving up the charts in March. And if you look at the um if you look at the ruthless records and look at the uh the numbers on the records, you'll notice that straight out of Compton comes after Easy E's Easy Does It. Had it come out before, it would have had an earlier catalog number. But that is neither here nor there. But I'm going back and forth with these cats and it's like six o'clock in the morning on twitter and the editor of this site 
which I can't remember the name of the site. Never heard of it before. It has like three had like 300 followers on Twitter and like nobody'd heard of it. Was going back and forth with me like I didn't know what I was talking about. And the writer of the article kept saying there's nothing wrong with my article. What ended up happening was people were responding to the fr- to the to the fracas and they would go read the article for themselves and they would send messages a hey, this article has mad holes in it. There's a lot of misleading statements. There are a lot of omissions. The writer maintained there was nothing wrong with it. I'm like, the sad part is that you don't understand that how much is wrong with the article and you don't understand what I'm saying. You just un- think that I'm hating on you. I'm actually telling you from an expert perspective and as a writer who has edited other people's work. Who looks at my own work like I'm an asshole who doesn't know what I'm doing. Every time I write something, I turn my brain off and I read it like someone who hates me who's waiting for me to fuck up. That's how I edit my own pieces. I read my articles like someone who is an expert in a particular field and is waiting for you to fuck up and completely butcher everything I hold dear. That is the scrutiny with which I look at my own pieces. If you don't understand anything about Bostonians, there's nothing you could say about Bostonians that we won't already say about ourselves or our city. We are the hardest critics you could imagine. I treat things I write as if A motherfucker I hate more than anybody on the planet wrote it. And I'm just waiting for them to fuck up. And I believe that's the best way to approach things. If you go into anything thinking that you already understand everything and know everything. And you're the best ever. You will never get better. And you will never be able to get out of your own head. And understand when somebody tells you something. Or gives you criticism because dismissing all criticism completely removes you from being at fault, which immediately means that you'll never get better because you're never open to finding out if you were ever, ever prone to being wrong, which is scary. And the response I was getting from this person who claims to be an editor-in-chief of a site was I felt like they were totally entitled um, which was scary. They would say things to me like I'm supposed to take you at your word without any proof or any citation to which I explained to them um As somebody who has spent 40 full years immersed in hip-hop culture. Because to be fair, I didn't know it existed. I've been alive for 43 years. Um, Someone who's been fully immersed in hip-hop culture for 40 plus years. I can tell you with 100% accuracy that 
Um, everything cannot be Googled or Wikipedia in regard to what we discussed or what we did in terms of hip hop or rap. There's just no record of it online. Look. When I was writing a piece about um, 1991, for example, I was hanging on this thing where I have a theory where um, the song Fuck Compton, which was produced by Tim Dog, the idea came to him after, or 1990, the idea came to him after an appearance on um, Yo! MTV Raps with DJ Quick and DJ Quick was with his group his protege second to none Fab Five Freddy always asks people to freestyle at the end of an episode so Fab Five Freddy asks them to freestyle at the end of the episode to which they they declined no, nah, no thanks, we don't do that Fab Five Freddy kind of taken aback says oh, okay, alright now, his response was quite different from other people's response they looked at it as a slap in the face. How dare you motherfuckers claim to be hip hop or, or be rappers and don't and not freestyle. Like that's a slap in the face. How dare you call yourselves hip hop? And from there that gave uh Tim Dog the impetus to be like, hey, I'm gonna make a song called Fuck Compton. Because fuck Compton. And also it was more speaking to the fact that a lot of New Yorkers at the time felt threatened by the fact that some of the best uh, rap music being made at the time was coming out of California, specifically Compton. There was an explosion of Compton um, artists that were making incredible music, and it was pushed forward by Straight Outta Compton, which came out in 1989. And also, I like to stress that, yes... Slick Rick's album did not come out November 1st, 1988. It came out December 2nd. I mean, 1988. Uh, matter of fact, if you go back and... Um, I actually posted it on Twitter. If you go back and look at the one of the articles that was actually posted, it's Slick Rick says himself that the album release party was held during, close to Christmas and everybody was dressed... In Christmas gear. That being the case, then the album couldn't have been released November 1st. Why would the album be released in November 1st? Motherfuckers don't have the release party till weeks after Thanksgiving passed until Christmas. That doesn't make sense. Nobody has a release party for an album damn near two months after the album came out. No one. It makes no sense. Okay? The reason why it was a Christmas-themed album release party is because the album was released close to Christmas. The fact of the matter is the album took a while to catch on sales-wise. It didn't appear on the black music charts until January 7th, 1989. And another reason why is because the album sold, 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 but it started selling more and more over the um, Christmas holiday. 
when Christmas 1988 rolled around, a lot of people got the album as a stocking stuffer. When everybody went out after Christmas, between Christmas and um, New Year's Eve, this is when people heard it out. Then after that, more people went out to buy it because they knew it was out. Because other people were playing it. Everybody was playing it. So by the time we get to the first week of January 1989, more and more people are buying it. All throughout the winter, more and more people are buying it. When spring hits, it's the hottest shit out. And the album was released months ago. Okay? These are things that I know because I lived them. I remember exactly what I was listening to. Thanksgiving 1988. Remember what games I was playing Thanksgiving 1988. I remember Thanksgiving 1988. I went to the Boston Latin, Boston English um, football game. And I was actually playing Easy Does It, the cassette, in my Walkman. Because my boy, um, my boy Jamil Green left it at the house. He was staying with family in um, Hammond Street, Hammond Street um, housing, the Hammond Street projects. Uh, Cause he was the cousin of my one of my brother's best friends, John Lucky O'Neill. So he leaves the tape at my house, and I played that tape to death. I didn't have the tape. I didn't have the cover. I didn't have the. Li- I didn't have the liner notes. I didn't have the album credits. All I had was the cassette tape. I had to find a friend who had the tape and read theirs. Easily I approach the microphone because I ain't no joke. Tell your mama to get off of my tip. I have no time to give a mine. No, I'm not going to say it. But you can easily imagine what the next word was. Now, there's this weird thing that happens when you're an expert in the field and you're a creative. You understand that oh man I have to relay this information to somebody and hope that they understand exactly what I'm talking about and nothing is more frustrating than knowing I know exactly what I'm talking about but I can't get it across to the person who's being super defensive that they don't understand that what they did or what they're doing is wrong or how off base they are But I can't tell you you're wrong because you're not going to be receptive to it. You're not going to accept that fact. And you don't even understand where you went wrong. And the saddest part is that the person who who was his editor and coming to his defense doesn't understand that they are coddling the person. And they are handicapping them by doing so. And that I actually know what I'm talking about. You need to be listening to me. Because I'm trying to help you get better. They just see it as a personal attack. And that is super frustrating. And then there's this weird thing where um, when you're an expert in something or you know it backwards and forwards, where you understand where the issue lies with um, the entry points in certain fields. When we listen to hip hop or rappers back in the day, that were really technically sound and really great 
Um, we knew we couldn't do what they did. I'll never be as good as them. When I heard a Rakim or a Big Daddy Kane or a DOC or later on when I heard an AC alone or a Micah 9 or I heard anybody who was lyrically amazing, I knew already when I heard Elzai. When I heard a Royce to five nine, when I heard people like that, I knew, oh, I'm never going to get that good. I'm just not going to get that good. When I was a child and I listened to jazz, I listened to certain jazz musicians, whether it be anybody from uh, Coltrane, McCoy Tyner, um, just long list. Thelonious Monk, you can name anybody, Art Blakey. Anybody you knew, I'm never going to get that good. I'm never going to be that good. There's no chance I'm going to get that good. But you listen anyway and you aspire. When I read certain writers, I knew that I was never going to write like Richard Wright. I knew I was never going to be able to write like a Langston Hughes. I knew I was never going to be able to write like a Zora Neale Hurston. I knew I was never going to write a play as timeless as anything Lorraine Hansberry ever did, ever. Ever. But I aspired to do the best I could anyway, in spite of it. When I heard certain producers, I knew that I was never going to be able to make beats like that. So I had to figure out something else that I could do. Same thing with with illustrators, pencilers, inkers, comic book writers, creators in any field. However, there comes a point when someone looks at all of this greatness and they understand it listen and they understand the scope of it the scope of the greatness and they realize i need to find an entry point i need to find out something i can do i need to remove all this extra shit i can't do and i can't fuck with because it's discouraging and it's depressing and i need to find something that i can relate to so i can get in myself so i can relate it to other people and bring them in rather than discourage them and make them leave entirely Okay. This happened with um, rock. This is how punk came about. So people uh, like to completely simplify, oversimplify, I should say, um, the creation of punk or what got people into punk or its creation. They looked at rock and they saw how I guess pretentious a lot of it seemed coming out of the LP era with all the specialization and expertise behind it and all these rock critics that had built things up and they were really really turned off by the extra bullshit so they said let's strip all of this down understanding what it was First of all, understanding what it was, the scope of it, the depth of it, the complexity of it, 
all the business bullshit involved, all the glitz. They said, let's strip all this bullshit away and let's get down to the bare bones things about what this is in terms of just expression and rebellion and angst, which is missing sorely from the scene. We need to get back to that because that's the only way to save this shit. So we're just going to fucking uh, deconstruct everything down to we're not wearing any of that shit y'all wearing. We're not going to play any of that extra shit y'all playing because I can't do what Neil Peart does. I can't do what Keith Moon's doing on the drums. I can't play what Eric Clapton plays. We're going to play these three chords. We're not going to play eight minute fucking songs. Our songs are going to be short as fuck because we're going to play the shit Get through it, and then our set's gonna be over. And someone else can get on stage. Okay? So, this is kind of how punk gets started. Understanding all of the, of, the, of the trimmings of what rock had become, mind you. And later, what happened was people were like, oh, I can relate to that. Shit, I can do that. Shit, let's do that. And what ends up happening is now you have an audience that feels connected to what's on stage because it relates to them and they can do it too. But what ends up happening is these acts, these bands start getting good. You hear what I'm saying? They start getting good. They get past just the we're not people who can play our instruments well. We're not people that know what we're doing. A lot of them ended up learning on the job. If you've read any book about anybody who's great at something, a lot of times you're going to find them being in a situation where they were uncomfortable, where they were thrust into a position they didn't know much about, and they learned on the job. And they got better at it, and they got their feet wet, and they, they suffered a few setbacks and they recovered and they figured the shit out. This is what happens in a lot of fields. This is what happens with writing. This is what happens with journalism. This is what happens in, in the field of fucking television, directing. I recently saw a documentary about um, Brian De Palma called De Palma on um, Netflix. And when he tells his story, it's mind-blowing because it happened in a time when you were afforded opportunities to fuck up and learn we don't really have those opportunities and you hear the names of the people that were his contemporaries his competition the people that inspired him the people that pushed him that field is all important that field is all important. I'm repeating that. When I came up blogging, and I'm using air quotes because I fucking hate that term now, but that's what we were doing. The field, that class of 2007, or that field of 2006, 2005, in the early days of the weblog, when I used to go online back in the days of um, message boards, and all the people that were commenting on these different sites and the people that I encountered on OK Player back then, they all were the field which pushed me 
to do what I did. I would write something, see someone else write something, delete it immediately, and then have to do something else because I didn't want to do what they did. I didn't want to sound like them. Or someone would do something, I'd be inspired and be like, oh, I got to top that tomorrow. That competition is healthy. Having somebody be a sounding board for you and tell you where you're fucking up is crucial because a lot of times what happens is we start believing we're great. One of the people that was really important to me was there's a guy, um, G. Valentino Ball, Greg. When Greg made it a point, him and Brandon, also known as Bedlam of Home Show Off Marketing, used to make it a point. I used to meet with them. Everybody has it in their mind. The great Dart Adams, the legendary Dart Adams. You know, Greg, who knew me back when I was a kid through my big brother when I went to Boston Latin, just sees me a lot of times as Dave's little brother and as Dart Adams. But that 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 is crucial because Greg and Brandon will pull me to the side and tell me when I'm fucking up. And a lot of people were too scared to do that. And there were times when I would go seek out Greg and or Brandon or somebody. And they'll be like, yo, you're leaving this on the table. You're doing this. You're fucking up. You need to be doing that. Every so often, there are people in my life who have made it a point to be like, hey, yeah, we got to talk. Jean Grey did it. Jean Grey told me about myself years ago. And she was right. And I still remember every motherfucking word she told me. And she was absolutely right. DJ Babu ran it down to me before too. Brian Coleman has had talks with me. Brian Coleman and Adam, and Adam um, Mansback. <laughs> I thought I was just going to be meeting with these guys and talking and just... <laughs> You know, and it turns out to be kind of an intervention for me. Where's my book? I needed it. Uh, Kathy and Dolly. Dart, we have to talk. Why haven't you done A, B, and C? All throughout my life, this has been something that everybody hasn't been comfortable doing. But it's important to seek out people who tell you the truth about yourself or what you're doing. And for the love of God, when someone is critiquing you or trying to tell you something in hopes to make you better, rather than get defensive and shut that person down, maybe listen because you can only get better. Critique is not the end. Anytime you're a creative and you put something out, you have to expect there's going to be criticism involved. A criticism coming back. That's the nature of the game. Whether or not it's valid is another point. But whether or not you really buy into it is another thing entirely. But for the love of God... Don't automatically shut things down when someone tells you something you don't want to hear. Sometimes you're just early. I wrote a lot of shit back in 2006, 7, and 8 that people didn't really catch until years later. But I knew that that 
was something that was worth it because people are going to come back to it later. And then there's some shit that I wrote that people are like, what? And I go back and read it now and I'm like, yeah, that was trash. But I learned from it. And that's what's important. And I'm never going to do that shit again. I just realized I talked for damn near an hour. Um, oh, God. Yeah. Never doing that again. <laughs>